<clears throat> I want to tell you a story about the longest basketball game I have ever played in my life. It was a JV game, Buchanan High School versus Corcoran High School in 1993. That makes me feel old. Um, and at the time, my high school was brand spanking new. In fact, the entire campus hadn't been built yet. The district bought this entire really large city block, and they first built the elementary school, and then they built the junior high, and then they built the high school. Um, and they pulled all the kids that would go to this school and basically started them at the elementary school as early as they could, and then those kids went over to the junior high. So my graduating class, the class of 95, had been the oldest class in their school for about six or seven years. There was no one older than my class. Um, so I joined that class when I transferred to that school of my sophomore year of high school, and we were meeting on the junior high campus. And that year was important for Buchanan High School because it was also the year that we started playing varsity sports. As sophomores, we played varsity sports. Now, Clovis, Fresno is a pretty big athletic town, so we couldn't play the teams in the town because that would be awful. Let's just call it what it is. It wouldn't be any fun at all. So instead, we traveled to places like Dinuba. Uh, I, my grandma used to live there in Dinuba, so we go to Dinuba, and we would go to Corcoran and, and all these other little schools. Now, I love basketball. I've played uh, pretty much all throughout my life, and um, when I got to this school, they basically had their varsity team already set. These kids have been playing together for years. So I was on the JV team, and um, it was full of, of, of players who were not quite good enough, I guess, at the time to make varsity, but they were still JV. So we traveled to Corcoran to play in their gym, and they had sophomores and juniors on their JV team, their best sophomores and juniors on their JV team. And it's hard to look at my JV squad as anything but second or third string sophomores. That's what we were. We were not the best that our class had to offer. The best were going to get whooped by the varsity team later that day. We played hard every game, but we were often outsized and outmanned. And this game was such an occasion. It was the longest basketball game I have ever played in my life, not in terms of time, but in how long it took for our suffering to end. <laughs> the final score of the game, though I cannot be sure about this because I've blocked some of this from my memory, was somewhere in the range of 68 to 12. 68 to 12. Uh, they beat us by 56 points. Um, we scored 12 points over 40 minutes. That is three points a quarter, or a third of a point a minute, which is not much. You're not going to win very many games playing like that. I scored two of our 12 points, which meant absolutely nothing <laughs> to anyone. And no matter what we did that day, it did not matter. We did not belong on the same floor as these guys. They knew it, and because they were getting to beat a bigger city school, they laid it on. They full-court pressed the entire game. 
They scored as much and as often as they could. They didn't put in uh, their bench players until closer at the end. They didn't want to beat us, you see. They wanted to embarrass us. And they did a pretty good job. And the worst part was, for me, we knew how bad we were that day. We saw how overmatched we were. And we tried really hard. We, we didn't give up, but no matter what the score, we had to keep playing. We did not have a choice. And the game is 40 minutes long. Or on that day, 400 minutes long. That's how long the game was. We couldn't quit. We could only pray that an earthquake would strike and end the game in a more dramatic fashion than this game was going. Now, in my young life, there was nothing worse than being embarrassed like that in a sport that I loved and played all the time. The helplessness I felt going up against a greater force was not something clearly that I have forgotten. Now, the story of Moses going to free the Hebrew people from Egypt tells of a back-and-forth struggle between two great but unequal powers. On one side, you have God. And what are God's credentials? Yeah, well, you know, he's God. He's the creator of the universe. He spoke the world into existence. He created all life forms as we know it. He cared and provided for his people, and he had his heart on his people being set free. And in the other corner, you had Pharaoh, the representative of Egypt. And what were his credentials? Well, at the time, he represented the pinnacle of human power. He was a king and considered a god amongst men. How did he get there? Well, he was born. That's how he got there, and he was in line to get that throne. But I assure you, in spite of that, he was very impressive. And he had his heart set on maintaining his power and keeping his slave laborers laboring. That was his goal. Now, Moses made the demand that Pharaoh let the Hebrew people go, and Pharaoh, and Pharaoh responded with a resounding no. Who is this God? he says, that Pharaoh should listen to him. Who is this God who has not shown himself in the generations that God's people have been slaves? Now, in order to convince Pharaoh, God started small by turning Aaron's staff into a snake, but the sorcerers and the wise men of Pharaoh duplicated that act. So God then stepped things up by turning the Nile into blood. This had an immediate catastrophic effect on the life of Pharaoh's people. There was no water for them to drink. All the fish died. The land stunk to high heaven. But because Pharaoh's wise men and sorcerers were able to duplicate in some way what had happened in the Nile in a small container of water, Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he would not relent. Now, here's what's difficult for us on the outside. We know that this is not a fair fight. We know that Pharaoh cannot stand against God. But does Pharaoh know that? And we look at things like the Nile being turned to blood and we say to ourselves, well, surely that's enough for Pharaoh. But it was not. The odds 
in this fight are not remotely even, and Pharaoh has no chance to come out on top. And he was in even worse position than I was all those years ago on that basketball court because the difference in power between God and Pharaoh was immense. It was the difference between real and fake. Pharaoh could have stopped this, however, anytime he wanted to. Anytime he would choose, could choose, to say, you know what, that's enough. But Pharaoh does not choose that. Where I had to play the full 40 minutes, he chose to play the full 40 minutes. And he refused to see what was happening. He refused to acknowledge that he was a pretend God going up against the real God. So in response to this, God sent plagues on the land of Egypt. What is a plague? Well, let's run through the definition, shall we? It is a contagious bacterial disease characterized by fever and delirium, typically with the formation of buboes and sometimes infection of the lungs. We have never heard of anything like that. I don't think it'll ever happen. Any sort of uh, plague with the infection of the lungs. Um, number two, an unusually large number of insects or animals infesting a place and causing damage. Number three, a thing causing trouble or irritation. So it can be kind of any of those things according to Webster's. But the message here is that plagues may take many different forms. But every form is bad. There is not a good or pleasant plague. Agreed? Okay, good. Now, the plagues then can represent a little bit of a problem for some who read through the Bible and through this account. Um, they find the plagues problematic, especially the final one. And the problem, if God is loving, how could he do this to people? And if God is loving, how could he take the lives of innocent children in order to further his cause? Now, we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But we have to recognize that God treated the Egyptians with a sense of escalating ruthlessness that is sometimes a little bit hard to digest. He is not kind to Egypt. So why did God use the plagues then? This is always the question that comes up when we talk about God doing difficult things in the lives of anyone. What should he have done differently? What could he have done differently in order to attain his objective of having his people go free. Should God have appeared and given Pharaoh a big old hug and said, Pharaoh, I love you, but you need to change your mind right now. Would that have worked? Well, if we believe in the wisdom of God, which we do, then we have to say, I don't know that being nice to Pharaoh would have changed anything about the situation. So there is kind of one simple explanation, and that's this. The Egyptians did not believe he existed. And they were already one of the most profit, most, uh, uh, now I can't think of the word I was just going to say. Prosperous, thank you. One of the more prosperous nations on earth. So how would more blessing or love from God 
have taught them anything? Could they have even heard with their mouths and arms so full of blessing? The Egyptians did not believe he existed. The Hebrew people knew there was a God, but they didn't really know this God very well. So God needed to prove in a definitive way to everyone that he is the God and no other God can compare or match up to him. So how could he do that most effectively? To one, convince everyone he was real, both Egyptians and Hebrews. Number two, convince Pharaoh to let his people go. And number three, gain enough currency with his own people so that they would follow him out into the unknown. God has to accomplish all of those things in the way that he deals with Egypt. So he had to show that he was a God worth fearing and a God worth following. The plagues definitively showed the world that God was God, incomparable in the things he was able to do. And he showed in the plagues that he controlled all aspects of the world. And it started by turning the Nile to blood, but there was much more to come. Which takes us to part one of this week's study, which I am calling Frogs! That was it. Uh, Let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. And we're going to start in verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace, in your bedroom, and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials, and on your people, and into the ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Okay, interesting choice for a plague. Uh, Frog seems a little bit strange. Um, So we have to ask ourselves again, what is the objective of this plague? It's that everyone would know he was God, Pharaoh would let his people go, the Hebrew people would decide it is right to follow him. So he sent a plague of frogs. What does a plague of frogs do? It's annoying. A little more than that, it's like, hey, would you get the flour? Open the flour container. Frogs. You know, hey, get the bread out of that drawer. Get the bread. Frogs. Frogs are everywhere. They are in your bed, in your ovens, in the places you prepare food. I like this one statement, which kind of gets skipped over. They are simply on you. Frogs are just on you. And the rich and poor alike will experience this. No one will be spared from the rise of the frogs. So, 
why the frogs? Does it prove that God has power? Yes, absolutely. Does it physically hurt the people of Egypt? No. Psychologically, yes. Physically, no. This is something they can live with. So one thing I want us to note is that in the plague of the Nile, which did make life more difficult, the, blood, the Nile to blood, and the plague of the frogs, that God is not hurting anyone. You with me? He's not hurting anyone. He is making life miserable. But we have to take a moment to appreciate the funniest part of this story. What's funny about a Prague of flags? A Prague of flags. <laughs> a plague of frogs? Man, I don't know what's up with me today. Uh, a plague of frogs? Uh, it's this. Uh, Aaron went out and he, you know, did his staff thing and, and all the frogs came up out of the land. And what did Pharaoh do? Well, he's done what he's done before. He calls his magicians, his magic. <laughs> I need to slow down. He calls his magicians, his sorcerers, the wise people of the land, and he says, can you duplicate this? And they say yes. And so (laughs) they duplicate God filling the land with frogs, which means what? There are twice as many frogs. Now, the Pharaoh has taken his people of power and has made the situation twice as bad. How can having frogs everywhere be twice as bad? I mean, are we talking like frog stacks now? Like what, how is this going? It's a little bit hard for us to stand, to understand. Which leads us to part two, where Pharaoh seems to have a moment of clarity and he decides, maybe I'm in over my head. From verses eight through 11, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices for the Lord. What? Where has this guy been? Now remember, when Moses and Aaron first went to Pharaoh, they asked that all the people could go out into the wilderness and worship their gods. So Pharaoh has remembered this. He says, look, I'll give you what you want. Just stop with the frogs. Can we just stop with the frogs? Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your house may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. That's an odd choice, isn't it? Why go through another day of frogs when he could have just said, well, I mean, you're here. How about now? Why doesn't he do that? He gets to pick the time. And by conceding that Moses could do this right now, he is giving up control of the situation to whom? But instead, he sets an appointment. Moses, you come tomorrow. I'll just finish lunch. And, you know, we'll we'll sit, we'll talk, we'll figure this out. Moses replied, it will be as you say, such you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people. They remain only in the Nile. So we recognize something else that Pharaoh had to have seen. His magicians can duplicate frogs coming up out of the land, but what can they not do? Get rid of the frogs. He probably asked them to do so, right? These are his magicians and sorcerers, but they couldn't do that, and that was a significant issue. 
so significant that in that moment that had to have gotten under Pharaoh's skin in ways we may never understand, he summoned Moses and Aaron and asked them to make it stop. If they make it stop, they can go out and worship God. And Moses did Pharaoh this, well, when do you want this to happen? It's going to happen tomorrow. Was Pharaoh seeing the light in this entire encounter? Well, it kind of seems, at least on the surface, that he is, that he's recognizing on some level he has to deal with this God. Just ignoring this or trying to copy him is not going to go away. So, he wasn't seeing the light, but we are definitely given an important clue that in this moment, Pharaoh recognizes there is something, there are things God can do that he and his sorcerers cannot do. And again, we are struck by the fact that the God, this God on earth in Pharaoh, could do nothing to stop the frogs. Remember what he's done so far. When a plague comes up, what does he do? He calls other people to come in and fix it. What does he do about any of it? Nothing other than decide to keep going with his whole charade. So when his magicians failed, he's left with no other choice. He had to ask God to stop it, which leads us to part three of this story, which I'm calling, You're Not the Boss of Me. From verses 12 through 15. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Okay. Some interesting things to note here in this passage. Number one, the, the passage says that God stopped the frogs for what reason? Because Moses asked him to. Uh, that's interesting. It's almost like God said, well, if you think this is what we should do, then let's do it. The partnership between God and Moses is flowing pretty well at this point in time. Number two, what happened when God took the frogs away? They died. Did they disappear? No. Instead, you have all these dead frogs. And what do you do with all of these dead frogs? Well, duh, you put them in frog piles. I mean, come on, like that's, that's just what you do. So they put him in these frog piles, I imagine, and then they're standing there looking at the frog pile. It's a big pile of frogs. Yeah, there's another one this size, one block over. Yeah. These frogs kind of smell. Yeah, yeah, they do. And that just got worse and worse and worse until Egypt smells like dead frogs. I don't, I don't know if there's a concentrate to duplicate that smell, or something, but I don't want to experience it either way. Why did God work it out this way? Why did God choose this and leave the dead frogs and do all of these things? Well, who was it that resisted God's request? It was Pharaoh. And there is a price to pay for resisting God in the way that Pharaoh is resisting God. There's a price to pay for going head-to-head -head with the creator of the universe. 
And God was not simply going to make it all go away. Instead, he left it as a reminder. Remember when all these things were in your house, in your bed, on you? You remember that? And again, we have the smell. And you know, I'm starting to think that the smell isn't really about the blood and the frogs. I think the smell is about Pharaoh's pride. That is stinking up the land. Because he will not admit that God is God. But here's what Pharaoh does, which is so very us, so very human. He acknowledges that he needs God's help. Things get marginally better. And what does he do? You know what? Things are better. Why should I listen to them? Why should I listen to their God? Why should I do any of these things? What's the damage done? Well, life stinks for the Egyptians. Seriously. It stinks. Life stinks. Yeah, okay. Um, I, got, I got punished, or not punished, I got criticized last week for not doing the obvious joke. So this week I do the obvious joke and no one laughs. I just don't know. How do I make you guys happy? But here's something we might not have considered in this entire situation scenario when we've read through this before. How does the common Egyptian person feel? We have Pharaoh, and we have Moses, and we have God, and we have the Hebrew people, but the, the voice that we do not hear throughout these stories is the voice of the Egyptian people, other than seeing the effect that it has had on them. And can you imagine for a moment what they're thinking about? They're minding their own business, and the Nile turns to blood. They're minding their own business, and there are frogs everywhere. And they have got to be thinking, what in the world is going on? Like, what is happening? Is anything permanently damaged? Not that we're aware of. Everyone survives the plague of the frogs. But these experiences had to be leaving their mark on the psyches of the Egyptian people. And the bad news is, it doesn't get better because part four is that God is God of more than frogs. He, is, he controls more than frogs. So let's look really quickly here at what comes next. The thing that comes next are gnats. Uh, any of you ever watched Survivor? Any of you ever watched Survivors? They, they put these people, you know, out in the middle of nowhere and in one of the storylines throughout every single, single Survivor series is the noceums, the gnats, these tiny bugs that they cannot see. And by like week two, everyone has bites all over their entire body. It's gross. Like it's really, really gross. So God sends a plague of gnats from verses 16 through 18 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. 
Pharaoh needs to stop trying to get his magicians to do more. Like why he doesn't ask them to take it away, I don't know. Um, are gnats worse than frogs? I would argue yes. Uh, for one main reason, the gnats came from where? The dust of the ground. Egypt is in a desert. Is there much dust on the ground? I would imagine there is. Is there dust in the air? Yes. Every time someone takes a step, there is dust everywhere. And all of that became gnats. Yikes. That is a terrible thing. They were like the dust of the ground. And when I think of dust, I also think of breathing in dust. I know, it's terrible. It's terrible. But here is something more important to note that is different from this plague than the ones we've seen before. What does God not do before this plague? There is no warning. He doesn't tell him. He doesn't ask about it. He just sends the gnats on Egypt. And this time, the magicians could do what? Nada. They couldn't duplicate it. They couldn't make it go away. And within this passage, we don't see it here. The magicians say to Pharaoh, um, this seems like it might be the finger of God. Do you think that there might be something more powerful than you that's at play in this whole scenario? The next one is also not so nice. Uh, by the way, we have no indication that the plagues have stopped with the exception of the frogs that died. So for all we know, the gnats are still there when the next plague happens, verses 20 through 24. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was, you see it? Ruined. The land was ruined by flies. Okay. Are the flies life-threatening? No, they're not. But where are they? Everywhere. And there are still likely gnats as well. I'm having a hard time what it must have been like to try to walk down the street with this kind of phenomenon happening. They're everywhere. They're, they're swarming everywhere, and the ultimate effect is that the land is ruined. Now, this is significant. That God has caused damage to the land of Egypt in this way. Up till now, 
everything has been an annoyance or has been awful, but no one's gotten hurt. So Pharaoh, you know, Moses goes to Pharaoh, demands. Pharaoh doesn't listen. It's flies. And this time, the flies damage the very land of Egypt. Except for in Goshen, where the Hebrew people live. Their land is fine. So understand what this means. Not only are they not dealing with flies and gnats and all that other stuff, which, I mean, good for them. We don't don't want them to have to deal with that, too. But they can continue to grow things, produce things, feed their families, work like they normally would in their yards, in their property, in their home. They didn't have property, but you know what I mean, around their places. Where the Egyptians were struggling just to take the next step in their home. I mean, some, like, entrepreneurial street vendor could have started selling, like, fly shoes, you know, especially made to deal with flies on the ground. But this is it. Life was very unpleasant in Egypt. But God had drawn a definitive line in the sand. All of this trouble is for who? The Egyptians, until they acknowledge he is God and they listen to him. But God's people, they're not going to deal with this. But the question that we have to ask about the Egyptians themselves, again, this is flies on top of gnats. Where can they go to escape this? Nowhere. Because are they going to go to Goshen, to the land of the slaves? No. They would, that would be humiliating to have to go to the land of their slaves to escape these things. So God drew this line in the sand. The authorities could do nothing about it, And that, my friends, is the whole point. To try to get Egypt without hurting people or too much to the point where they say, I give up. I can't do anything about this. We can't make more come. I don't know why we'd want to do that. We can't make them go away. All of this is just piling up one on the other. And so Pharaoh was again driven to make a deal. Make the flies go away and you can go worship your God. So Moses prayed to God, the flies stopped, and Pharaoh changed his mind. Never mind. Things are better. Things are better. We don't need to listen to your God or let you go. So what are we to make of this whole situation and what do we learn from it? Uh, Number one, it is undeniable that the plagues were devastating to the land of Egypt. Life was deeply affected when you could not go anywhere or do anything without the stink of blood, dead fish, dead frogs, swarms of flies, and gnats everywhere getting all up in your business. There is no peace, you see, for the the Egyptian people throughout this time. Now, what's weird about this part of the story is that Pharaoh, again, seems to understand that he has reached some sort of crossroads, that his power and the power of his people has has reached its end, and God just keeps going. So Pharaoh makes these bargains to get God to do what he wants him to do, he thinks. And he reneges on those agreements each time. Pharaoh believes 
that he is still setting the terms of this thing. He believes that he is manipulating the God of the Hebrews to do the Hebrews to do what he wants, which is one of the craziest ideas this guy could have, because you are literally asking the guy who brought plagues of flies and frogs on you to stop sending frogs and flies and gnats and when he stops it you're like "Ooh, i got you it makes no sense does it it makes no sense every time things got a little bit better he forgot about how miserable the previous hour was he just for And his hard heart propelled him to hold on to the power that he had. Even the suffering of his people did not dent his resolve. He was not going to let go. Which again takes us to the most puzzling element of all of this. It's not about how God does mean things to the Egyptians. It's about how one man, one man, refuses to bend. That's what this story is about. Was Pharaoh given opportunity to acknowledge God? Over and over and over and over again. Does he truly do it? No. I mean, he's, even when he concedes, he's just looking what he can get from the last. And, and don't you know that he probably went to the people and said, I made this happen, that the frogs stopped. I made this happen that the flies died. I am in control of this situation. What is Pharaoh afraid of? Have you ever thought about that? What is it? It's so easy to color him as someone who is just kind of so egotistical. He doesn't see logic. But I think it's deeper than that because you see, Out of all the people in Egypt, if the Hebrew people were to be let go, Pharaoh is the one person who would affect the most. Why? Well, because he's in charge. And if he gives in to this other god, who does he become? Much less than what they believed he was. And was Pharaoh willing to do that? No, I mean, certainly not without kicking and screaming. And and the true thing here is that while life would have changed for the Egyptian people with the slaves gone, they would have slowed down all their building projects. They would have had to find different ways to do things. They would have had to work for themselves. Pharaoh is the one who has to sacrifice. He is the one that is required to humble himself, and he does not want to do either of those things, sacrifice or humble himself. And so he will ride the smallest wave as long as he can. What does that, all of this, tell us? Look, God can show himself in a lot of different ways. There is no formula for how God can show himself. And God, because he has power over what? 
everything, can show himself and flex his power over everything in any way, shape, or form that God chooses. Has God done this over time? Yes, he has. So here's the troubling thing, guys, is that God can definitively show that he is God, but that does not mean that people will see it. How can people not see something that's definitive? If it's definitive by nature, shouldn't they see that it's true and respond to it? Well, yes, but what can I tell you? Like, we're crazy. We're not always thinking straight. We don't always have what God wants first in our minds. A lot of times we have what we want. God, I want you to show up, to show me your presence. And please do it. Uh, I have this document prepared for you. If you would look at point 1A, that's the, that's the starting point for how to show yourself. And if you look all the way down, you can skip some of the appendices and stuff. But this is, what, this is how I would like you to show yourself to me. This is how I would like you to show yourself to the world. But here's the thing. We can blame God for using harsh measures to deal with the Egyptians, but there is another force that is just as strong as God. Do you know what that is? It's our pride. It's our pride. The only thing that will stand toe-to-toe with God and ride every little wave we can. I wish it weren't that way. I really do. I wish that I would not be that way. I wish that in my life that I hadn't have been that way. I wish that I wouldn't have always insisted that God show up the way I want him to, to do it on my terms. So there's not only a lesson for the world or for the Hebrews or for the Egyptians, there is a lesson for us, and that is this. We don't set the terms for how God shows himself and works in this world. We don't. Now, on the surface, that seems like a really negative thing to say. That we don't, well, doesn't he care about us? Yes. Doesn't he love us? Yes. Doesn't he listen to us? Yes. Then why doesn't he do what we ask him to do? Because we don't set the terms. We don't make the rules. This is the God of the universe we're dealing with here. And we want God to do good things for us, and this seems consistent with who he is. But the problem is, when we just want God to do things for us that we think are good, and we pull in the love of God into this argument, we are talking about the most shallow, insufficient definition of love we can get. God gives me what I want. And that's how he shows me he loves me. The thing is that most of us have been in relationships with friends, family, kids, 
where we have had to come to understand a different definition of what love is. We understand that sometimes when you love someone so much, you have to let them fail. We understand that sometimes you love someone so much that you have to let them go their own way. We understand that God can show himself himself in a lot of different ways. We understand that our love is more than just giving someone what they want, no matter who it is. That love sometimes is hard and fierce and difficult. It is not all rainbows and candy canes. Love is a fight. Love is a fight. And the thing that sinks into me is that if we are like Pharaoh, if we are like this, then... You know, the truth is, it takes more than blessing for us to understand who God is. It does. Pharaoh has had everything handed to him in his life. He has received blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So much so that when things get hard, he doesn't even know what to do. How does he handle adversity? And something that we are going to see about him is that by the time these plagues are over, by the time the Red Sea has been crossed, he has become a petulant child who cannot stand the fact that he doesn't get his way. It takes more than blessing for us to understand who God is. And do you know when I learned the most about God? It was when I was so deep in depression that I didn't know who I was anymore. It was when I was so far gone that I didn't think I loved my wife. I didn't think, wasn't sure God existed. And I was a preacher. Those, that job and those thoughts are not um, conducive to one another. And you know, the hard part about that is, is did I suffer? Yeah, I did. Did my family suffer? Yes, they did. Did God do this to me? No. God didn't do that to me. But what he did was in the lowest point of my life, he showed himself. He showed himself. And the way he showed himself to me was really disappointing to a lot of other people. Because you know what he didn't do when he showed himself is he did not ride in on the God of horses and fix my life. Instead, He just sat with me and waited for me to come around. And I did. I don't know how. But I did. And I am the lovely, 
talented, handsome human being you know today, because my life went to hell. But on the other side of that, God was there. And he restored me slowly, letting me catch up to everything that I understood through this hardship and through the struggle that I didn't understand before. And here's the shocking revelation that is really difficult to understand. I didn't know God very well before that. But I know him now. And I sure wish I didn't have to suffer to learn that lesson. But I can tell you with absolute confidence I would have never learned it if he would have just blessed me through. We don't work that way, do we? We are more like Pharaoh than we want to admit. We're more like Moses arguing with the bush than we want to admit. We're more like the Hebrew people crying out to God saying, why have you brought us out here? This story accurately represents us, doesn't it? But through every trial, through every hard thing, God is present. God is teaching. God is helping his people and the world learn about who he is. And it's a hard road. It's a hard road. But God was making himself known. And you know, the Hebrew people didn't know who he was just based on these plagues happening to their enemies. Oh, God is a warrior, controller of nature, who will defeat everyone that comes against us. Well, sort of. <laughs> but they don't know him yet, do they? They have to go and they have to lean on God for all their provision. They have to hear about what it, what it looks like to live in relationship with him. They have to wander in the desert because they were too dumb to follow him in the first place. All of this has to happen. So it's easy to sit back and look at this story and say, well, God shouldn't have used plagues. Well, God did what he had to do to try to get through the one barrier that would stand against him, the pride of one man. 